0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Albany Baptist Church. I just have a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, that just a reminder that next uh, Sunday we have to turn our clocks ahead, spring ahead. Uh, so if you want to make sure to arrive on time at church, then you have to do that. And then also, again, as was announced this morning, we have the Catskill Ski Retreat. That's March 13th through 15th. That's coming up in a couple weeks and there's still time to sign up. Well, as we begin our service, let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, you are our rock and our salvation. You are our stronghold and we shall not be shaken by your grace. You are the rock of our strength and our refuge is in you. And Lord, we pray that you might be our refuge in this hour to come. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would come to worship you, and that we would do so with our whole heart. And we pray that you would give us lips to praise you in truth, and lips to, and a heart to be consistent with what our lips are saying. And we pray that you would be with us in our in our worship service. That uh, we would sense your presence. You have promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. So we pray you would remember your promise and be with us this afternoon, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now if you would, turn to Psalm 62, Psalm 62. This psalm is for the choir director, according to Juduthin, who was a Levite that was a master of music appointed by David. And it is a psalm of David. Now in this psalm, we are urged to wait on God alone in the midst of the enemy's attacks against us. And of course, in our situation, applying it to the New Testament, that we're fighting the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he warns us not to take refuge in man or to re- resort to sin. And this is easy to do when we're being attacked. We can seek out earthly means to deliver us. And I couldn't help but think of King Asa in Second Chronicles 16 who was being attacked by Israel and sought help from Syria instead of the Lord. And he was bribing them with silver and gold in the midst of israel's attacks and he was then rebuked by hanani the seer uh, for trusting in man and not in the lord and then if that wasn't enough he ended up trusting in the physicians when he became diseased in his feet and he sought the uh, physicians instead of the lord as it's stated there in second chronicles 16 well then thirdly he reminds us that in the end Uh, God will call every man to give an account of his works. So we need not fret against those who are against Christ and against his people, because God will bring justice in the end. Now this psalm has some glorious and encouraging descriptions of God's character, which should convince us to trust in him at all times. So let's read the entire chapter, Psalm 62, beginning in verse 1. Again, for the choir director, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, my soul waits in silence for God only, or for God surely. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. And now he introduces, he starts describing his persecutors. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now he admonishes us not to trust in men and not to sin. Verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up. They are, all t- they are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. One day justice will be carried out. We must trust that the Lord will carry it all out in his due time. Well with this psalm behind us, let's in our mind let's turn to hymn number 571 in the hymn, hymn, Trinity hymnal 571) <clears throat> Christ. <clears throat> for our time of intercessory prayer, we have the Sola Gracia Church in Caltanissetta, Italy, Reno Ufo, and then the mission to Montenegro, Niksic, Montenegro, Stan Serbatovich, and of course we'll pray for our pastor. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Father, indeed we do take refuge in you and you alone. We trust not in man and pray that you would keep us from doing so, for you know that our hearts are prone to wander. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you might bless your works, that you would uphold us and sustain us, uh, keep us from sin and temptation. And uh, we pray the same for these churches that we have on our list this afternoon. We think of the Sola Gracia Church in Caltanissetta, Italy. Uh, we pray for Pastor Uffal. We haven't heard from them in a while, but we trust they're in your good care. We trust that they are uh, looking to you and, and seeking your word for guidance. And uh, we pray that you would sustain them and grow them and that they might increase in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the church in Montenegro, whom we have heard many times in recent months. And we praise you for Stan Zerbadovich and his years of labor there in Montenegro, and pray that you would uh, bless the church. We remember them requesting uh, prayer for the evangelistic efforts at the university by this team from the Danish Bible School. And pray that you, O Lord, would bless this endeavor, bless their uh, upcoming ministries in April through July, and pray that there would be growth there for the people of God and salvation for sinners. And then for this land that is suffering unrest and protests, we pray for peace and justice that that would prevail in their land, and that uh, you would allow your churches to gather in peace and that they would be able to worship you without interruption or threats, and pray that you would continue to grant them liberty to preach the gospel, and that the people would be a shining light in a dark place. And then, Lord, we thank you for uh, our pastor. We thank you for the um, Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of. And we pray that as we think upon our Savior and his death and and uh, all that he accomplished at the cross. We pray that it would be a boon to our faith, that it would encourage our hearts, uh, that we would glorify in, in, in our Savior, the Lord Jesus, uh, that we would draw nearer to him, and that we would have a better relationship with him, and that we would love him more. Help Pastor Sarver as he preaches. Help us as we hear. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Pastor Sarver comes to preach, turn to hymn number 704, 704 in the Trinity hymnal.
1: Finished our series of Lord's Supper meditations on the various characters that were present at the trial and the crucifixion of Christ, I was seeking the face of the Lord concerning what I should uh, preach next, and my, my mind was drawn towards thinking about what great texts of uh, Paul and his epistles especially that I will make sure that I want to preach before I die certain texts in which, I mean, I'm not going to expound all the way through all the books of the New Testament that we haven't covered in the same depth that we have in Thessalonians and in other places. And uh, my mind went immediately to the text we're going to study tonight. I want to uh, have you turn with me, therefore, to the book of Galatians and chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Please follow along as I read, beginning with verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Before we look at these words, let's pray once again for God's help. Indeed, O Lord, as we have just sung, it is our prayer that you would keep us near the cross. We confess that when we have strayed, when we have sinned against you, it is seldom that we have had the cross in front of our mind at such times. And when we have had our hearts grow cold, we can trace it, no doubt, again and again, back to the point at which we began to think less and less of Christ and of his cross. And We plead with you, Lord, that you would be pleased to work in our hearts more and more the kind of love and devotion for the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us that the Apostle Paul manifested so often in his epistles, even so in this place that we read just now. Write its words we do pray upon our heart. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I want to begin by asking, is there such a thing as good boasting. All of us are turned off by what is obviously a bad kind of boasting. Boasting is one of man's most repugnant sins. There are few people that you would like to least spend time with than those who are always bragging about themselves and bragging about what they can or what they have done. Braggarts are unsufferable to be around. And worse yet, the Bible tells us that in God's eyes, one of the defining sins of the ungodly is the way they boast in themselves. Psalm 94.4, they utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. However, there is a kind of boasting that tends to be a little bit less repugnant the kind of boasting in which we rejoice in something or in some person that's outside of ourselves. We all tend to rejoice in one thing or another, and we find delight in expressing that delight to others. A baseball fan, for instance, he delights in talking about the team, especially if it's on a winning streak. Or he might glory in one of his favorite players. Music lovers, they find delight in talking about their favorite composer, and perhaps you will even remember by getting in a word or two for Beethoven once in a while in my sermons. And Christians, they often will speak highly perhaps of one of their favorite preachers. Or perhaps they will speak favorably of their own denomination or their own church. And when we're referring to some trait that some godly saint exemplifies, this is a worthy thing to imitate and there, there could be a, something of a good thing in rejoicing in what we see in somebody else. But sin can even creep in when we are glorying and boasting in, so to speak, in others. There's a kind of boasting in others that leads to factionalism. And by associating ourselves with some preacher or some kind of church, we convey this self-congratulatory idea that we are proud of being associated with that preacher. Or we're proud of being associated with that church or that denomination because it's better And it it is more faithful to the word of God. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it was this kind of spirit that was the first thing that he was compelled to reprove. Some of them were saying, I am Paul. Some of them were saying, I am of Apollos. And others were saying, I am of Cephas. And then, of course, the super spiritual ones, they said, well, I am of Christ. And so Paul was constrained to reprove their proud factiousness By asking them, who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so, not only boasting in ourselves, but even sometimes in others, or or perhaps our denomination, or so forth, this can tend to even drift into the wrong way. But there is nevertheless a kind of boasting that Paul commends. Christ is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And therefore Paul says, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. Now there are some people that are troubled by these words, that we are told to glory or to boast in the Lord. It seems like God is commanding us to Make him some kind of, a, of, of our adoration. And this, is, this makes God out to be something of a braggart, they think. But the difference is this. God is worthy of boasting in, in a way that nothing else is worthy of boasting in. God never steals glory for somebody else. And we don't steal glory from somebody else when we boast in the Lord. He is not making some kind of a pathetic but undeserved claim on our adoration. Now usually we boast in somebody because of something that he or she has done. Our favorite slugger has just hit three home runs in a game. Against overwhelming odds, a soldier has risked his life and delivered his unit from what seemed to be a certain annihilation. And so this raises the question among all of God's works, which work especially is worthy of praise? Especially of boasting it? Well, Paul gives us an answer in our text. God forbid, he says, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In an article on this theme, Rick Phillips writes this, I recently saw some photos taken of the cosmos by the Hubble telescope. And the fact impressed upon my heart was how glorious is the God who made such glory. But even a glimpse of the heavens pales compared to the glory of God's redemptive work in Jesus. When the cross of Christ, where the Son of God voluntarily suffered the wrath of God for shameful sinners like us, when that cross is lifted before our eyes, even the glory of the heavens grows dim. In our text, we have one of the what well, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived thought of the cross of Christ. He's given us his judgment in words that can't be mistaken. And we need to remember that in these words, Paul is not just giving his opinion as a private citizen. He wrote these words under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These words are God-breathed. And among Christians, there is no controversy over the truthfulness of these words. This isn't one of those things in which we say, well, this is a matter in which godly Christians differ from one another. Sometimes issues about end times or baptism or other various issues godly Christians will disagree about. But this is not the case with what Paul is saying here. In these words, we have a dividing line, we might say, of all humanity. Heaven or hell, eternal blessedness, or everlasting misery, they hinge on answering how we answer this question, what do you think of the cross of Christ? Well, Paul makes it very plain what he thinks of the cross of Christ. He says, God forbid that I would glory or boast in anything else. Now, in handling our text, we're going to do so by asking several questions. And we're only going to get through the first two of these questions, but to give you a little forecast, and it's in your outlines, we'll get to the other ones, God willing, at some other point. But the first question we want to ask is, what did Paul refuse to boast in? And we have to look at what he says in verses 12 and 13 for the answer. And then we want to notice, secondly, what he did boast in. What did he boast in? And, of course, it's the cross of Christ. And then we want to answer later on, why is it that he boasted this way? And then, finally, what was the effect of this cross upon Paul? And he describes that effect at the end of verse 14, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But I want to begin with this question. What did Paul refuse to boast in? And again, we're looking here at verses 12 and 13. I want to read those verses again. He says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In these words, Paul reiterates what prompted him to write to the Galatians. In the word that's just before in verse 11, he says, see the big inscription with with my own hands. It's as if he Asked for the pen to write the end of the letter instead of having the penman write it down. And he, he, he summarizes the essence of his whole letter to these Galatians in these final verses. And in them he tells them what prompted him to write them. Some Jewish Christian teachers, they had come to do some follow-up work on Paul's evangelism. And these Judaizers, they too claimed to be preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. They believed in the basic truths about the cross and about the empty tomb. But there was one thing that these teachers wanted to add to what Paul had preached. They thought, well, Paul had missed out on something. And we need to kind of correct it a little bit here. And and we need to be more well-rounded in the whole message. And so there's this one thing that he's been leaving out. And that is he's forgetting to tell people that they need to get circumcised. Now, in the Old Testament, the sign of belonging in God's covenant was the removal of every male foreskin. And these Judaizers, they insisted that circumcision was still a prerequisite for salvation. Their missionary program, you see, it could be be summarized with this slogan. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15 and verse 1. In other words, they were saying that a convert, he has to become a Jew. To become a Christian and to this day there has always been a temptation for the church to turn from the gospel from the to turn the gospel from being gospel being a gospel about the, the cross alone to the cross plus something else and whether that's something else is some duty or some sacrament or some social cause it is always the plus this or the plus that that is the problem. And for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to be the cross alone. That's Paul's point here. Now, since these Judaizers believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation, naturally, they wanted to circumcise as many people as possible. You want to make sure that you get a lot of people circumcised, because this is a matter of heaven and hell. And when they visited these Galatian churches, therefore, they pressured the Gentile Christians in these churches To become circumcised. And the problem was not so much circumcision in itself. But as Paul puts it in verse 12. These would compel you to be circumcised. They were saying you're going to be lost if you don't get circumcised. You have to be circumcised. They were demanding that these Galatians be circumcised in order to be saved. Now why were they doing this? They thought they were upholding God's ancient ancient ordinance of, of circumcision. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he discerned their real motives. And notice what he says at the end of verse 12. He says they did this, and here's their first motive, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. And here Burton, I think, accurately writes, the cross stands for the whole doctrine of salvation through the crucified Jesus as against that of justification by the works of the law. And it was this message that was offensive to the Jews because it seemed to treat the religious right that distinguished them, their circumcision, it seemed to treat this as if it was was worthless. This is what distinguished them, For hundreds of years for the Gentiles. And now you're saying we don't have to have have any circumcision anymore. It's worthless. It destroyed, you see, their religious preeminence. And it treated them as if they were no better than pagans. You're just as dirty as the pagans. And you need to get saved just like them. They didn't like this, you see. The Jews. I'm talking about Jewish unbelievers here. And so to avoid persecution from these Jews... These Judaizers, they tried to straddle the fence. And as Guthrie puts it, they strove for a compromise between the non Christian Jewish proportion, on the other hand, and on the other hand, a non Jewish Christian position. And in this way, they tried to avoid persecution from these these Orthodox Jews. Now, when we think of the sufferings of the early church, we often think of the persecution that came from Rome. We think of the ten great waves of persecution that came over the church in the first three centuries. But the first attacks, let's remember, came from the Jews. You remember the stoning of Stephen, who was stoned at the direction of the Sanhedrin, Acts 7. You remember that Paul, even before his conversion, he was traveling all the way to Damascus in order that he might bind the Christians there and that he might bring them back to Jerusalem, that they might be killed. Or at least imprisoned. As the church spread throughout Asia Minor, the Galatian churches, the Galatian area, that's what we're talking about here, Jewish persecution followed the apostles. And the easiest way to avoid this persecution was to become circumcised. Now, to this day, Christians face this same temptation because the cross has a way of inviting persecution, it arouses opposition because. When you preach the message of the cross, this this means you're telling people that they're under damnation, they're under a curse if they don't get saved. It tells us that in God's eyes we are so bad that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we are so bad that the only way for us to be saved is for the sinless Son of God to bear the punishment we deserve. And for him, that this punishment, it involved coming under God's curse. It involved bearing God's wrath. And we're so bad that we deserve to go to hell. And only Jesus enduring the equivalent of that hell can ever be our salvation. Now, if you want to go into a new company and you you have a new job and you want to make sure everything runs smoothly, is the first thing you do, walk up to somebody and tell them how bad they are? Is that the way you, you have a good relationship with that person? There's no better way for you to make an enemy than to do that. And so you see, there's a sense in which when we tell people they're really bad, so bad, they deserve to go to hell, it's not going to be something that they like to hear. They can't stand to hear this. Philip Reichen, he says this, I once had a conversation with a woman who was wrestling with the claims of Christ. She had begun to realize that surrendering to God's will for her salvation would require radical changes. This is what she said. If I believed that my friends at the pool were really going to hell, she said, then I would have to tell them about Jesus, wouldn't I? But then I wouldn't have any more friends. Maybe not. People generally do not like being told that they are sinners who need a Savior. But this is what it means to be a Christian. It means standing up for Christ and the cross. So, The first reason Paul mentions here why these Judaizers were insisting on circumcision is that they didn't want persecution. They said, well, let's figure out a way to just make everybody happy. Let's get them all circumcised and then we'll be okay. But then there's another reason that Paul listed for how, why they insisted on circumcision. They wanted to seem successful. At the beginning of verse 12, Paul says that they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. It wasn't concerned for the spiritual well-being, you see, of these Galatians. This isn't what motivated them. It was in the sphere of the flesh, you see, in the sphere of the non-spiritual. This is what, what they were wanting to, this is what they were boasting in. This is, they want to make a good showing in this. And it was all a specious outward show, Paul says. And more specifically, at the end of verse 13, he says, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now this is a strange thing. In which to boast. But. And we don't. We have a hard time getting it. Why they would boast in circumcision. But we forget how important circumcision was to these Jews. And apparently you see. The more foreskins that they collected. The more impressed people would be. When they brought back reports to Jerusalem. And so they were not really concerned you see. About whether these Galatians kept God's law. They just wanted to brag about how many converts to Judaism that they had made. And you can almost imagine them selling out sending out a, a, a prayer letter, a, a mission to Galatia prayer letter, back to Jerusalem. And at the headline of the at the, the top of the letter, this is this is what they advertised. One hundred and three circumcised since we last wrote. How amazing. But it was all for show. It's been rightly observed that. Showing off is one of the characteristics of false religion. False religion is all all wound up with externals. Things like attendance figures, how many people walk the aisle, stage performances, worship rituals, and the like. Outward religion is what cult leaders strive for as they seek to recruit new converts. Externalism, dear people, defines churches that seek to entertain rather than edify. True religion, though, is inward. And even though it always manifests itself externally in some way in your conduct, it begins in your heart. It it begins with a spirit wrought regeneration of the heart. It's inward first and foremost. And whenever something external like circumcision is treated as if this is the essence of Christianity, this then begins to make Christianity to rest in something that, the, that can easily be done in the flesh. That's why it's so dangerous, for instance, to, to, to make pastors fill out cards every Sunday. Well, how many people did you get to walk down the aisle? How many people made professions? How many people did you put through the water? And there's these externals that we can manipulate... So we can, we can accomplish, you see, in the flesh. It's external. So it can be performed without the supernatural aid of the Holy Spirit. And this way it panders, therefore, to sinful self-reliance. And so Paul refused to boast in any of this. He refused to boast in circumcision. And here in Galatians 6, his boasting in the cross is explicitly said over against against boasting in circumcision. And in other places, he mentions other externals that refused to make the ground of his boasting. He refused to boast in his national privileges. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Philippians 3. And at one time, there was nobody that could outstrip Paul in his zeal for Israel. He prided himself in that he was of the chosen Jewish race. And he thought of himself as far better than ignorant Gentiles. But no more. He didn't boast in his national privileges anymore. That was another external thing that lopped off. And and he didn't furthermore boast in in, in good works, especially external good works. Now nobody worked harder than Paul. Paul. He was more abundant in labors than any of the apostles, 2 Corinthians 11, 23. No one preached so much. No one traveled so much. Endured so many hardships for Jesus' cause. Nobody in his day was ever made such the means, you see, of converting so many souls and doing so much for the world as the apostle Paul. And in fact, I think we could take the greatest servants of Christ from every age, And I don't think we can find a single person in Christian history that excelled the Apostle Paul in his devotion to Christ and in his zeal to get the gospel out to the lost. If anybody could have boasted in good works, it would have been Paul. But he never gloried in the greatness and the numbers of all these works as if these in the least way were meritorious or worthy of praise. And furthermore, while we're thinking of externals, He didn't glory in his churchmanship. If ever there was a good churchman, it was Paul. He founded churches, let's remember, and he founded them all over the Roman Empire. He ordained Timothy and Titus and many other pastors in these churches. He set in order what was lacking in various churches. He instructed them concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper, the qualifications of office bearers, the care of widows, the exercise of church discipline, and a host of other church issues. He was a churchman par excellence. He wrote letters to straighten out whatever was amiss in these churches. And he made many return trips back to these churches that he had planted. He prayed continually for these churches, one by one, and individuals in those churches, one by one. He was filled with anxiety over those churches, lest in his absence, Satan, or perhaps the world, would draw them away. And sometimes he would send people to find out how they were doing. And he could find no rest in his soul until he got relieved by a good report. And one of the things that he lists among many of his trials is this his deep anxiety his deep concern for all the churches 2nd Corinthians 11:28 But is Paul glory in what he did for the churches because he was such a churchman made sure that everything was done right in the churches does he ever speak of any of these aspects of his work as being in, in any way contributory to his salvation does he ever look at them as the basis of his justification and acceptance with God? Never. Never. False apostles, they visited Corinth and they visited other places. Always they were parading their external credentials. So on one occasion, Paul says, Okay, you forced me to do this. I wouldn't have done this otherwise. But for a moment, I'm going to boast just like a fool. And so he says to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. And journeys often, and perils of waters, and perils of robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils of the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, and weariness and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." But did Paul glory in these things? Did he boast in these things? Is this what he put his trust in? Instead of boasting in these things, after he does this fool, fool job, he says, I'm going to be like a fool and talk about it as if I could. He says with tongue in cheek after giving this list, oh yes, I remember one other thing that I can boast in. The governor of Damascus, he tried to arrest me and I had the glorious humiliation of being lowered down over the wall in a basket. What a sight that was. And so you get his point. He isn't going to boast in these things. He isn't going to glory in these things. These are external things. In every age, there are false apostles that boast, you see, in externals. In his lectures on Galatians, the... Great reformer Martin Luther, he wrote this, This carnal glory and ambition of the false apostles is so dangerous a poison that I wish it were buried in hell, for it is the cause of the destruction of many. But let them glory in the flesh that list, and let them perish with their cursed glory. As for me, I desire no other glory but that whereby I glory and rejoice in the cross of Christ. This afternoon, is it possible that I'm speaking to somebody trusting in external things in any way for your acceptance before God? Are you resting in your efforts to, to reform yourself? Are you looking to your church attendance or the things you do for the church as the basis of your acceptance? or you're resting in your baptism or your church membership as the basis of your standing before God. My dear friend, beware of this kind of self-righteousness. Open sin kills us thousands, but self-righteousness kills its tens of thousands. Go and sit instead with Paul. He sits at the foot of the cross. And in your heart, when you're sitting at the foot of the cross, get rid of all those other things that you once trusted in those things that puff you up in some way, those things that make you judgmental if others don't do what you do. Cast away this secret pride. Repudiate every thought of your goodness as something that commends you before God. And if you struggle with casting away what you once prided yourself in, think about how flimsy this trust is going to be in the day of judgment. Think about how you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to say this, this is really worthy of your respect, Lord, the last day. When he who has eyes of the flame of fire that can search hearts and search motives and can penetrate and see the thoughts and the intents of the heart, if these things in which you now boast, if you think that they're going to get you somewhere in, in the last day, they will be nothing but a refuge of lies. They will be nothing but something that that you will grieve over, something that you will see when it's too late, that you shouldn't have trusted in those things. And why, therefore, will you trust in them now? In that day, what you're trusting in, it'll be blown away like chaff. And so I plead with you to turn from these vain trusts, this trust in externals, And say with the Apostle Paul as he does in this place, God forbid that I should glory or I should boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus. Well, this brings us to our second heading. Having asked, first of all, what what did Paul refuse to boast in? We now ask, what did Paul boast in? Verse 14, he gives us an answer. It is in, he says, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the boast of these Judaizers was a strange thing, it's hard for us to understand how circumcision and getting all boastful about that, that seems kind of a weird thing to to get proud of, but it was something they were proud of. And if that seems strange, in Paul's day, his boast would have even sounded stranger. I think it's difficult for us to capture the meaning of the Greek word for boast. Because there's no precise word in English that is a precise equivalent of that word. In English, the word boast and brag, they're kind of like the same thing. But the Greek word that Paul uses, it means something more than bragging. It means, as John Stott writes, to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for the object of our boast of glory fills our horizons, energizes our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. Paul's glorying in the cross in this way, it was for two reasons. In the first place, he refused to revel in any of the things that people usually revel in. And so this He cut off all the other things so that he might glory only in the cross. He didn't boast in his talents. He didn't boast in his intellect, his influence, his appearance, his income, his skill. He didn't boast in his circumcision or any kind of external religious right. He absolutely refused to take pride in any of his accomplishments. And this is a strange thing because you see, those are exactly the kinds of things that people take pride in. And not to have some kind of pride in it. You must, really have, a, you must have a real problem with self-image, Paul. You don't, have any, you don't even think positively about any of those things? He says, no, I don't. He refused to revel in any of them. But then more importantly, what Paul boasted in, this was even stranger. He boasted in the cross of Christ. Now Christians are used to thinking about the cross as something noble, something that's beautiful. The great theologian Carl Henry, he observes that the transformation of the bloodstained cross of Calvary to the diamond-studded gold cross of the cathedral may well signify man's attempt to remove the offense of the cross. But the first century inhabitants of the Roman Empire, they didn't think of the cross as being some kind of a gold thing that has diamonds stuck in it and beautiful and is lifted up high and it goes through processions and it's, people think it's wonderful and beautiful. That's not the way they thought of the cross. It was the symbol of ultimate humiliation. They considered the cross to be the epitome of what is degrading, disgusting, despicable, and detestable. In his commentary on these verses, F.F. Bruce, he, he writes this. The object of Paul's present boasting was by all ordinary standards of his day the most ignoble of all objects. A matter of unrelieved shame, not of boasting. It is difficult after 16 centuries and more during which the cross has been a sacred symbol. And he's referring back to how Constantine time and and it began at that time to be something that was regarded as sacred, it's, it's difficult after these 16 centuries to realize the unspeakable horror and loathing which the very mention or thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. The Latin word crux was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used an archaic formula which served as a sort of euphemism. Hang him on the unlucky tree. Now one could understand it, therefore, if even the early Christians, if they admitted that the fact of their Savior's crucifixion, and they did so reluctantly, because they were compelled to admit it sometimes, because it would have been difficult to admit. You, you, your Savior, your God that was crucified? This was hard to say to people. But in Philippians 3 and verse 8, Paul who was a Roman citizen by birth and he was a Jew by religious upbringing. He not only repudiates as mere dung those things that he once had taken pride in, in order that he might become, he said, I like to count all refuse as dung, that I might have an intimate knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my crucified Christ. In the Latin version of his commentary on that part of Matthew 27, in which the mob is crying out for Christ's crucifixion, the church father, Origen, He calls it the utterly vile death of the cross. But it was so central to Paul's message. He calls it the word of the cross. It's the message of the cross. It's the essence of what we preach. Now it's hard to think of a a contemporary cultural equivalent to the cross. And one that might come close has been suggested by the cotton patch paraphrase of, of our text. I wouldn't recommend this paraphrase, by the way, but at this point it gives us a little bit of a parallel. God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of a lynching, we think of something horrible and degrading. That's the way they thought of crucifixion back in those days. And this leads us to, 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 to to be astonished. What a strange things to boast in, to brag about. One would think that the cross, this would have been an embarrassment to the early church. And when people heard this message, what would they think when they discovered that the very founder of this religion, he's been executed like a low-life criminal? But as Reichen puts it, instead of denying this or covering it up, Christians advertised it the very thing that most people consider too obscene to whisper in polite company, Christians were broadcasting in the streets. In this very letter to the Galatians, Paul frequently boasts in the cross, I have been crucified with Christ, 219. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed among you as crucified, chapter 3 and verse 1. And throughout the rest of his letters, he continues to make the same boast. We preach Christ crucified. I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He spoke of the word of the cross, the offense of the cross, the triumph of the cross, and the wonder of the cross. Again and again, he preaches, he emphasizes this most offensive message, the word of the cross. It's truly been said that Christianity is a religion about a cross. Now, what is the cross that Paul glories in? Is he thinking about that wooden cross in which the Lord Jesus was nailed and put to death? As you sing that hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, it almost seems like that's what's being talked about in that hymn. But is it the literal wooden cross? Is this what he is boasting in? Now, if you live back in the Middle Ages you'd think that this is exactly what he was boasting in. The great reformer, John Calvin, he wrote a, a satire entitled The Advantage Which Christendom Might Derive From an in- Inventory of Relics. And it's, it, it's a piece that makes you roll in laughter as you read it, and yet at the same time cry and, and grieve if you understand what was going on back in the Middle Ages. In this treatise, he exposes the ludicrous claims that were being made About the thousands of relics that were being housed in various churches. And if you went to these churches, you could get certain years of purgatory knocked off your your score. And and especially the ones that have the best relics. They're the most profitable ones to use. And so all these churches, they wanted to have all kinds of relics. And so John Calvin in this treatise, and it's maybe 50 or 60 pages or so, He just, in a kind of almost like a dry, humorous way, just starts listing them off in in almost like a monotone way. You can imagine him doing it. And the the humor in it it is so ludicrous. And this is what he says, for instance, about the cross. Let's consider how many fragments of it are scattered up and down over the whole globe. A mere enumeration of those which I have a catalog of would certainly fill up a goodly volume. There is no town, however small, which has not some morsel of it. There is no abbey so poor as not to have a specimen. In some places, larger fragments exist, as at Paris and at Rome, where a crucifix of tolerable size is said to have been made entirely out of it. In fine, if all the pieces which could be found were collected into a heap, they would form a good shipload. Though the gospel tells us that a single individual was able to carry it. What a front then, thus to fill the whole world with fragments which it would take more than 300 men to carry. Well, obviously, it was not the literal wooden cross at which Paul gloried. And he would have been horrified to find out that fictitious pieces of this cross had been turned into idolatrous relics. And I have no doubt that he would have denounced the Catholic adoration of the crucifix as blasphemous and as idolatrous. And so he's not speaking of a crucifix. He's not speaking of a piece of wood. Instead, when he speaks of the cross in our text, there are three things that are emphasized. As time allows, I want to emphasize these three things. First of all, notice he calls it the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in some places, he simply refers to our Savior as Christ. Or in other places, Jesus. And frequently as Lord or our Lord. But here we have what Spurgeon calls a sort of pump of words in this full description, as if in contrast to the very shame of the cross. He puts dignity and glory together with what's shameful, you see. It seems that he deliberately expresses himself this way in order to stress the very dignity of the one that was subjected to such an ignominious death. He is Christ the Anointed. Jesus the Savior. Lord is the supreme sovereign. And I'm not still I'm not sure if it's still the custom, but in nineteenth century England, when they buried a great nobleman, a herald back in those days would stand at the head of the grave and would proclaim the nobleman's titles. Here lies the body of William, Duke of this, and Earl of that, and Count of the other, and knight of this order, and commander of that. They probably do that in some places. And even so, with deep solemnity, it's as if Paul is doing the same thing here. He's proclaiming the titles of the one, the very one that's being, that was nailed to this tree. And with this pump is joined affection because he calls him our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as he speaks of the cross is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It also included in his expression is a second thing. I think it's assumed that he is talking also about the fact of the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he really died the death of a felon. And he was nailed to a crude Roman cross. This wasn't some kind of a dream. It actually happened he was literally put to death on a tree and in this happening to him, he became accursed in the eyes of all the Jews. Referring to Deuteronomy 21:23, in this very letter, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On that Roman gibbet, was nailed the very one who is God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Yet one who made himself of no reputation. Who took upon himself the form of a servant. One who became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And This is the astounding fact that is assumed in the words of our text. And I wish that I could speak of this in, in, in with the tongues of men and angels. I wish I could speak of this wondrous event. This amazing event that's happened in, in a way that far exceeds my, my ability. The announcement that the Son of God died on the cross to save a multitude that no man can number. This deserves The trumpets of angels. This deserves the praises of the millions on high. Who with a loud voice together say. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches. And wisdom and strength. And honor and glory and blessing. You and I recognize the glory. That resides in this great fact. The crucifixion of our savior. I've not been telling you anything new. But herein, let's also remember, is the crux of Christianity. The Latin word crux means cross. Here is the difficulty. Here is the stumbling block. Here is the rock of offense. The Jew, he could not endure a crucified Messiah because he looked for a Messiah with pomp and power. The philosophic Greek, he regarded the summons to trust in a crucified felon as an insult and the preacher of it as a fool. He despised what he considered the inferior intellect of anybody that didn't have the understanding of the latest developments in philosophy and could discuss those things with ease. And Paul saw that in this great proclamation, the proclamation of the cross was a wisdom that excelled all that wisdom of the Greeks, but the Greeks despised it. As for the Roman, Romans, they trampled on the world. They subjected the world. They were a people of power dying in weakness, that's your savior? That's your deliverer? It's preposterous. But Paul wasn't intimidated by the Jews. He wasn't intimidated by the Greeks. He wasn't intimidated by the Romans. Far from being ashamed of the cross, he gloried in it. His motto was, we preach Christ crucified. And then thirdly, also included in this expression is the doctrine of the cross. Paul gloried in the doctrine of the cross. Now often when he refers to the cross, he's speaking of the doctrine that Christ died for sinners upon the cross. And in these places, this one word cross, it stands for Christ crucified. And this is what Paul has in mind when he tells the Corinthians, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Preaching the cross, the phrase that he often uses, this involves unfolding its significance, unpacking that which was accomplished on the cross, preaching it, heralding it, explaining it. That's what it involves. And in a word, in this place, Paul is referring to the great biblical doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine that Christ was made sin for us. That he was offered once to bear the sins of many. it's the great grand doctrine proclaimed in Hebrews 9. Now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. The doctrine of the cross is the doctrine of sacrifice for sin. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, a Lamb offered up in behalf of sinners. It is the doctrine of a full atonement, a complete ransom having been paid. And it's also necessary—a necessary part of this doctrine—that we also preach that whoever believes in this Savior and in this crucified Savior in particular, he is justified. Whoever trusts in the Lord Jesus, at that very moment, he is forgiven of all of his sins. If you're sitting here as an unconverted person, you don't have to wait and go pray by your bread tonight. You don't have to have a pastor come and talk to you about it. You can right at this very moment, call upon the Lord Jesus, that he would save you from your sins. And you can trust in him, even right now. This is part of what we preach. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the cross that Paul loved to preach. This is what he heralded from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. He walked up and down the streets of the great cities of the Roman Empire telling people of a divine savior who suffered in our behalf on the cross so that all who believe in him will be saved. This is the gospel that he came back again and again to in his letters to the churches. In 1 Corinthians 15, he declares, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins. This is what he preached first of all. And to the Corinthians who wanted something a little bit more advanced, Something a little bit more philosophical. Something a little bit more oratorical. Something a little more impressive. He says, I determined not to know anything among you. Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the subject Paul loved to dwell upon when he wrote the believers. His epistles are chock full of references to the suffering and to the death of Christ. The disciples to whom Jesus revealed himself, you remember how they said to themselves after he had departed, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us? And as we read the letters of Paul, we read the expressions of one whose heart burned within him as Christ had manifested himself to him and as he had talked with him in the way as he had opened up the scriptures to him by the power of grace of the spirit. His heart is always full of this subject. There's not a question in his epistles that he doesn't come back to this for the answer. This is his favorite theme, Christ and him crucified. He enlarges upon it continually. It's the golden thread that runs through the, the doctrinal teaching of this great apostle. And clearly, Paul thinks that from the babes in Christ to the most advanced Christians, They cannot hear too much about the cross of the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul lived on throughout his Christian life. He tells the Galatians the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What is it that drove him to work so hard? What is it that made him live the way he lived? What impelled him to press on in the work and face so many discouragements and in spite of so many beatings, in spite of all these imprisonments, these stonings, these shipwrecks. Five times, he says, 39 stripes and they limited to 39 because people would die if they got too many. That's how bad it was. Five times, he said, that's how many they laid on me. What made him so persevering and patient? What was it? He was always feeding by faith on Christ's body and blood. Christ crucified was his meat and drink. And he explained to those who wondered why his, in his zeal he had, it seemed like he's gone crazy. He says the love of Christ constrains us because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. Second Corinthians 5.14 This is the message of Paul. Christ and him crucified. It's the message of the whole Bible. It's the truth that confronts us when we open up the book of Genesis. The seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. This is a prophecy of Christ crucified. All through the book of of Moses. What do we see? We see the priest laying his hands upon a lamb and sins symbolically being transferred to the lamb. We see in the Passover lamb. We see in the continual shedding of blood in the tabernacle and in the temple all prefigurements of the coming Messiah and all the way through the New Testament until we come to the very last book of the Bible, the crucified Jesus is there. In the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. And throughout eternity, we'll never get beyond this theme. Beware of any religion in which there's not a whole lot about the cross if you have to move somewhere in the country, the most important thing for you to find is a church that preaches the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And take care that when you read your Bibles, you try to see Jesus, Jesus and him crucified in the Bible. He's there if you'll look for him. And don't be satisfied until you've had glimpses of your crucified Lord Jesus. We should search for him in the scriptures in this way. He is the one that we should preach. He is the one that we should rely upon. He is the one that we should live upon. And he is the only one in whom we should boast. One of the greatest hymns that was ever written is a hymn that we're going to sing as we celebrate the Lord's table. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, it appeared in Isaac Watts' 1707 book of hymns. And it was inspired by this very text that we're preaching. Originally, it had this title, Crucifixion to the World by the Cross of Christ. And there are many that consider it to be the finest hymn that was ever written in the English language. Charles Wesley, he wrote many hymns, a whole book of hymns. And yet he said he would have rather written this one hymn. We're going to come back to this as as I preach on this text again, but I want to just quote in conclusion the second stanza of this wonderful hymn. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most I I sacrifice to his blood. May the Lord write these words, especially the words of this great apostle upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and bless you for the bleeding and dying of our precious Savior. And We confess that all too often our hearts grow very dull. They grow very distant. And we have little feeling, we have little regard for this wonderful truth that is found throughout the Bible, a truth that was especially expounded so passionately and so consistently by this great apostle. May it be so that we would enter into the spirit of what this great apostle has expressed in this text, where we too would be able to say, God forbid that I should glory in anyone or anything except the cross of Christ help us Lord for we are weak our hearts grow dull the cares of the world they replaced concerns for Christ we plead with you Lord that you would bring back to our memory these things that we might live upon Christ that we might preach this Christ that we might devote ourselves more fully and completely to him Pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior.
2: Amen.